Welcome to Bloomberg Law. I'm Greg Storr in our Washington 99.1 studios, along with June Grasso in New York. Donald Trump's Supreme Court announcement is just hours away. Bloomberg is reporting the president has selected either Neil Gorsuch or Thomas Hardiman. Both of them are federal appeals court judges. Both have, over the course of a decade, developed reputations as solid conservatives who point to the Constitution's original meaning when they consider what rights it protects. But conservatives have heard that before. They were badly disappointed when David Souter, nominated in 1990 by the first President Bush, turned out to be a liberal. And the Republican-appointed Chief Justice John Roberts, while generally conservative, devastated his one-time backers when he voted to uphold Obamacare. So what do we know about Neil Gorsuch and Tom Hardiman, and how sure we are we about what type of justice they will be? Our guest is Ernest Young, a professor at Duke University Law School. He is a former law clerk to Justice Souter. Uh, Ernie, thanks for, for joining us. Um, let me ask you to start with this. So based on what you know of these two men, um, you know, given that, that Donald Trump has said he wants somebody in the mold of Antonin Scalia, the conservative icon, how likely do you think he is to get that? Well, I think it's hard to say. Um, both these men seem like very distinguished um, conservative jurists, um, but they're far more conventional picks than somebody like Antonin Scalia would have been. Um, Antonin Scalia was actually a product of an effort in the Reagan administration to kind of recruit the, the stars of the academy, the legal academy, on the conservative side and put them on the bench. And that gave you people like you know, Robert Bork on the D.C. Circuit and Richard Posner on the Seventh Circuit, Frank Easterbrook on the Seventh Circuit, um, and some others. Um, and so he was a very out, you know, it had a kind of academic term of mind, and which focused him more naturally on these questions of methodology. Um, you know, a, somebody who's coming from a career, you know, as a practicing lawyer and and someone on the bench isn't going to be, I think, as as committed on those questions of of methodology. And so I think it's really harder to predict, and they're much more likely, I think, to be more pragmatic about them. Ernie, so since Trump has always mentioned, even you know, during the campaign, that he wanted someone just like Justice Scalia, is Gorsuch closer to Justice Scalia? Um, I think that's uh, very hard to say. I don't know either one of them well enough to to say that. I think that I think Gorsuch may have a little more of a reputation as somebody with a. I don't want to say interest in these issues outside the context of individual cases. So he wrote a book about um, assisted suicide and things like that, um, which you know may give him a little more of, a, of an academic turn of mind and a, a little more of a focus on those questions of methodology. Um, Having met Justice Scalia, I would just say there is no one like Justice Scalia. I mean, <laughs> in terms of you know, the flamboyance and the wit and the um, you know, determination to, at the same time that you are um, deciding cases as a judge, also kind of teach a seminar in an ongoing way about you know how to interpret the Constitution. I think that that makes him unique. Ernie, there is this perception, and to some degree I think it's probably true, that some justices uh, get more liberal as they get on the court. Uh, now, now, when you clerk for Justice Souter, which was, I think, what, 95, 96, is that, mm -hmm. that right? Yeah. So he had been there for about what, five or six years and had, I think, already 
uh, seemingly uh, you know, developed a reputation, developed a, a record as being more liberal than some people had thought. But I want to ask you, why in your mind do justices sometimes change and why does it seem like they always change by becoming more liberal once they, they get on the court? I don't think they always change by becoming more liberal. I, I would say Byron White, for instance, um, was a you know a Kennedy appointee and a, a member of the Warren Court majority, and yet on certain issues he turned out to be a, a quite conservative voice, especially kind of in the in the, his later years. Um, so I don't think it's inevitable. Um, I think in Souter's case, there was a misjudgment, perhaps, about what sort of conservative he was in, in terms of his commitment to history as, as an important source of constitutional meaning. There was no inconsistency. He remained committed to that. He was a far more um, conscientious originalist, I think, than Antonin Scalia was. I, I would point you to a case like Seminole Tribe versus Florida, in which Justice Souter wrote a 90-page dissent that is all history and text, and, and Justice Scalia joined the majority um, that didn't really have much of a historical leg to stand on. So I think you know history is going to point you in different directions politically, depending on the issue. So so, for instance, in in you know national security cases, for instance, the framers were probably more suspicious of presidential power than people who are more for, focused on um, the current dangerous environment that the nation operates in. In, in establishment um, clause cases, I think the the history tends to point in a little more. Um, you know, progressive direction, I guess, or, or, or a direction that's associated with with liberal um, thought now than um, the current situation might warrant. So history can cut all sorts of ways. Um, why do they? Why do they move? In in some ways, I think there's a sense. Um, Sometimes there's an effort to make sure that all the positions are represented, right, that, that every argument is getting a, a fair shake. I think, for instance, Justice Kennedy has moved a little bit as he thought the court was um, getting unbalanced in one direction or another to kind of maintain some kind of balance. Um, so that may be it. I, I think in many cases these, these reasons are just idiosyncratic to the individual. Ernie, Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer says the Democrats will filibuster any nominee that's who's out of the mainstream. Would you consider these two out of the mainstream? Oh, absolutely not. I mean, I think they are firmly within the mainstream of, you know, American legal culture. I mean, they are Republicans. Um, and one thing that I think people don't get is that even you know, it, it's not that they are injecting politics into their re legal reasoning. It's just simply that there are kind of well entrenched divisions about you know, certain legal questions that tend to correlate fairly well with the political parties. So you know, the Republicans tend to have a view about how far national power extends that's different from jurists who are, who are appointed by Democrats. Um, doesn't mean they're they're focusing on politics rather than law. It's just a fairly predictable um, way that you know certain kinds of judges resolve certain kinds of legal questions. Um, but I think these are you know. 
quite conventional. I mean, Trump is an unconventional Republican president in a, in a lot of ways, but in his, you know, all of the lists that he's promulgated about judicial appointments, he's, he's been pretty conventional. We, we're also joined at this point by Michael Gearhart, a professor at the North Carolina Law School. Uh, he has been deeply involved in, I think, the last five Supreme Court nominations, one way or another. Um, Michael, thanks for joining us. I w- let me ask you, th- this whole controversy we've had over the past few days about uh, the executive order banning travel from some countries. Do you see that as a, a having a significant effect on the confirmation process for this new new justice or new perspective justice? Well, I think there are a lot of people that will try to ha- uh, ensure that it has some effect on it, but uh, I'm sure that the nominee, whoever that is, will uh, avoid any questions about it. And I think that uh, it, it's, a, it's obviously um, uh, unfolding sort of a legal issue, and it's exactly the kind of thing no prospective nominee should address in any way, shape, or form. What, what, Mike, we have about 30 seconds left. What issues do you see as being uh, the, the most crucial questions to ask of the nominee uh, from the Senate? I, I, think, I think there are going to be a handful of issues that are of persistent interest. Um, the privacy will be a big uh, question, including abortion rights. I think there'll be questions about freedom of expression, including campaign finance reform. I think there'll be questions about Second Amendment rights and what kind of gun regulations may be consistent with the Second Amendment. I think there'll also be questions about how far uh, Congress's power to regulate the economy may extend. Um, and uh, there may also be significant questions about religious liberty. Those are just some of the ones I think we can expect. I want to thank our guests, uh, Michael Gearhart, a professor at University of North Carolina Law School, and Ernest Young, a professor at Duke University Law School. Donald Trump has promised his announcement uh, at 8 o'clock this evening, uh, announcing either Tom Hardiman or Neil Gorsuch will be his nominee to fill the year-old Supreme Court vacancy.